Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. All right. Hello, my beautiful listeners, and welcome to Skylight. This is the Skylight Book Podcast, and I'm your host, Lance Morgan. Today, we're welcoming um, Richard Thompson Ford to read from their new book, Dress Codes, How the Laws of Fashion Made History. And they'll be in conversation with me today on the street. Before I introduce them, I want you to rem- I want to remind you that Skylight Book currently is um, closed for browsing, but open for curbside pickup and online ordering on our website, www.skylightbooks.com. Please um, remember that we'll hopefully be open next week for browsing again. And when we are, please remember to socially distance yourself and bring a mask. All right, today we have the wonderful author, Richard Thompson Ford, who's going to be reading from his new book and then have a short Q&A conversation with me about it. Richard Thompson Ford is a professor at Stanford Law School. He has written about law, social for the New York Times, the San Francisco Chronicle, and Slate, and has appeared on the Colbert Report and the Rachel Maddow Show. He's the author of the New York Times' notable books, The Race Cards and Rights Gone Wrong, How Law Corrupts the Struggle for Equality. He lives in San Francisco. Today, his book, uh, Dress Codes, is a a revelatory exploration of fashion through the ages that asks what our clothing reveals about ourselves and our society. All right, Richard, um, you ready to uh, read from your book? Yes, absolutely. And thanks so much for having me on the podcast. Uh, no problem. It's a pleasure for us. So this is a, a section of the book that involves a dress code um, at a Hooters restaurant and um, also involves the question of how people style their hair. Um, it, the, the little section is entitled Blonde Ambition. On August 12th, 2013, Farron Johnson was fired from her job at a Hooters restaurant in Baltimore, Maryland, because her blonde hair violated the company's dress code. Anyone familiar with the Hooters brand can see the irony here. Hooters has created a global brand image around the Hooters girls, curvaceous waitresses who dress in tight, low-cut t-shirts and orange short shorts, serving up PG-rated titillation with every order of curly fries. The prototypical Hooters girl, as depicted in the company's advertisements and represented in most of its restaurants, is a voluptuous blonde. For Hooters to ban blonde hair was as incongruous as for it to ban cleavage. Farron Johnson, however, was not the stereotypical Hooters girl. 
She was African-American and her blonde hair violated a well-known, if unwritten, dress code. The Hooters employee handbook sets out detailed standards for dress and grooming. Um, part of being a Hooters girl, it reads, is maintaining the Hooters girl image at all times. When you are in the Hooters girl uniform, you are literally playing a role. You must comply with the image and grooming standards that the role requires. Hair must be styled and worn down at all times with a glamorous appearance, no visible braiding, weaving, ponytails, or similar styles will, will be allowed. The Hooters dress code also prohibits, quote, bizarre, outrageous, or extreme haircuts, styles, or colors, and hair more than two shades in variance from its natural color. Johnson's blonde hair probably violated this two shades rule, but the arbitrator who heard Johnson's discrimination complaint found that the company didn't apply it even-handedly. White women, including some in the company's own advertising campaigns, broke the rules with impunity. Johnson was fired for a different reason. The manager told me black people don't have blonde hair, said Johnson. In fact, plenty of black people do have blonde hair or have had it. Beyonce, Nicki Minaj, Dennis Rodman, just to name a few, they almost certainly bleach their naturally much darker hair, as do many Caucasian blondes. Peroxide blondes, bleach blondes, platinum blondes, bottle blondes, news anchor blondes, all of these terms refer to the well-known fact that most blondes owe their fair hair to chemical processing, not genetics. Indeed, blonde hair is, for most Black women, no more artificial than straight hair, which the restaurant effectively required. According to former Hooters waitress Rachel Wood, Black women felt obliged to straighten their natural hair or conceal it under a wig to create, quote, an acceptable Hooters girl image. If artificially straightened hair was practically a job requirement, why was Ms. Johnson's artificially colored hair a problem? Hooters required a very specific type of artifice, a mix of conventional and unthreatening feminine attributes. Straightened hair reflects an ideal of feminine beauty that was already firmly established long ago. Black women who copy hairstyles designed for white women signaled their acceptance of the norms and values of the mainstream society, especially the role of women as decorative. But blonde hair is a symbol of purity and desirability that remains the prerogative of the white race. Women of color who go blonde highlight the artifice underlying most blonde hair and transgress status boundaries to reclaim to a racially exclusive symbol. What Farron Johnson's manager really meant when he said black people don't have blonde hair is that black people shouldn't have blonde hair. The blonde has held a distinctive place in the sexual imagination of Americans, whether the sex pot allure of Mae West, Lana Turner, and Marilyn Monroe, or the innocent girl next door charm of Sandra Dee and Doris Day. Alfred Hitchcock's famous Ice Queens are striking examples because the director was unusually self-aware and deliberate in his casting. Hitchcock deployed the symbolism of the classic blonde and all of its permutations. Eva Marie Saint's elusive and cunning minx in North by Northwest, Grace Kelly's society girl on a pedestal in To Catch a Thief, Dial in for Murder in Rear Window, Janet Lee's Good Girl Gone Bad in Psycho, and most iconic of all, Kim Novak's unattainable mirage of the feminine ideal in Vertigo. Novak's dual roles in the film, 
the impossibly refined blonde Madeline Elster and her worldly doppelganger, the brunette shop clerk Judy, provide a classic case study in the symbolism of blonde hair. When Jimmy Stewart's heartsick detective Scotty Ferguson begins his obsessive campaign to remake Judy into Madeline, a trip to the hair salon is the final crucial step in the transformation. As Scotty impatiently waits for Judy slash Madeline to emerge, the hairstylist tells him reassuringly, it's an easy color, a wry allusion to the feminine artifice that plays such a pivotal role in the film. As Hitchcock well understood, even as 20th century Americans worshiped the natural blonde, everyone knew that most blondes were made, not born. And over time, the blonde has evolved. The immaculately artificial blondes of the early 20th century Hollywood studio system, the platinum blonde of the 1950s bombshells such as Jane Mansfield or Mamie Van Doren, and later of country Western singer Dolly Parton. The self-consciously ironic bottle blonde of Deborah Harry, um, singer for the new wave band Blondie, one album was called Once More Into the Bleach, and Madonna, whose conspicuously dark roots announced a knowing postmodern relationship to blonde iconography, made literal in the name of her 1990 concert tour, Blonde Ambition. Blonde hair had become a floating signifier, unmoored from any consistent, much less natural association with ethnic pedigree or biological predisposition. Blonde hair can only refer to other examples of blonde hair. Dolly Parton is an exaggerated iteration of Jane Mansfield's already exaggerated blonde hair. Debbie Harry's blonde hair with dark roots deliberately subverts the glamorous and innocent blonde hair of blondes of the past. Madonna's blonde hair evokes and comments on sexiness by association with Marilyn Monroe and Lana Turner. Throughout the 1980s and 1990s, unambiguously fake blondes proliferated and became less and less remarkable. Blonde hair was as commonplace as artificially straightened or curled hair. It's no surprise the women of color wanted in on the fun. And yet, as late as 2013, one could be told that black women don't have blonde hair. It's hard not to see this, as a pres this prescription as a sort of racial sumptuary code, a 21st century Negro act pro prohibiting blacks from dressing above their condition. And there I'm referring to another part of the book. There was a set of dress codes um, that required black people to dress in low status clothing. Um, it's as if the social meaning of blonde hair would be confused and its status diluted if a woman of color dared to crown herself in blonde tresses, like a butcher's wife wearing a jeweled tiara. Today's laws do not prohibit such status transgressions. They do, however, prohibit race discrimination. Farron Johnson won a $250,000 civil rights judgment against Hooters. Okay, that's it. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. That was, I feel like just so open, like mind bogglingly like <laughs> true and like just so much of that was just, I feel like me and the listeners are going to, many listeners are going to be like, whoa, wow, that's crazy. All this information. Oh my God. Well, thank you for that. Um, so to start off our conversation, um, the way I like to start it off is to just Get a little personal. Um, what? Well, as we all know, it's crazy times right now. What media, um, whether whether it be books, TV, movies, whatever, is helping you get through this right now, and just helping you like stay calm and centered right now? 
Oh, wow. Let's see. So um, with the, uh, with media, um, TV, I've been watching, uh, oh, the one with Fran Leibowitz, uh, Pretend It's Not a City. And yeah. um, so I've been checking that out. Um, um, what else have we been watching? Song Exploder. Um, just started to see that where people talk about the origins of some, you know, really classic pop songs. And that's been a lot of fun. Oh, cool. I just saw the one about Hamilton. Um, mm -hmm. and and um, yeah, let's see. I, I, I checked out Tenet, that film, okay. the, um, the Chris Nolan film, uh, mm -hmm. which I, I thought was terrific. Um, yeah, cool. so then recently for reading, I've had to read a lot of stuff for work, so they're a, mm -hmm. a little bit less fun. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but meanwhile, you know, no, I read um, the, the, the one, one book that I really enjoyed recently was, um, uh, oh, oh, oh it's, it, is it in? M.K. Jemison. Um, she wrote, oh, yeah. Is it her trilogy? Yeah, yeah the one about New York the, City. For, I finished the, the, the oh, Broken God. Earth trilogy, which I thought was just so Broken good. Trilogy. Just so good. Um, <laughs> but I got, city, just got into the New York one. The city we... The city we... The city we became, that's it. Yeah, yeah. the city we became. Uh, yeah. I'm a bad story that. right now. <laughs> No, no, that's, I mean, M.K. Jemison, she is a, what a writer, what a, what an amazing, just inspirational writer. So I'm glad, I'm glad she, yeah, out of all those, I'm glad she's there giving you just that moment of just peace right now. Yeah. Um, that's great, that's great. Um, so tell me about, like, a time when you were writing this book, when you were just, like, shocked by information you came across, and just, like, had to just like step away for a second and be, I feel like there was, you've had to have like a moment like that while researching just to be like, wow, what? You came like the, you're um, finding the mummy, like unearthing a mummy in the desert kind of moment. Oh, yes. Um, you know, I think there were, so there are a couple of them. One, um, and I mm. just mentioned the, the Negro acts. Um, you know, I was mm. casting around for information about the way, um, African-Americans during the period of slavery related clothing. And I knew I'd find some interesting stuff, but I wasn't aware of this law that actually said, um, you know, forbade black people to dress what they called above their condition and had a whole list of things that they weren't allowed to wear. It actually said that um, anyone who caught um, someone breaking this, this dress code was entitled to take the clothes from the person and use them for their own purposes um, any other law against theft notwithstanding. So it basically licensed, you know, essentially every white person to go and take the clothes off the black, the back of a black person who they thought was dressing uh, too well. That one wow. blew me away. Because, I mean, I knew about the customs around mm. um, this kind of thing and, and, and um, the, the way people would try to punish socially sanctioned what they considered to be uppity blacks. But I didn't know that mm. there was an actual law on the books um, authorizing it. Wow, that's <laughs> that is big. That I mean, you said you had some other moments too. Any yeah. others you'd like to share? Well, too? yes. Well, so I started when when I started the book. I was mainly looking at you know more contemporary late twentieth century, but I wound up in researching and having to go way back in history. And one thing that kind of really surprised me was you had in um, 
the, the late Middle Ages and early Renaissance, these sumptuary laws, and they were, mm -hmm. you know, in a way, a lot like the Negro Act, they were designed to ensure that people had to dress according to their social status. So they um, would outlaw people who weren't in the, you know, aristocratic classes from wearing certain types of clothing. Now, I always thought, well, yeah, these laws were on the books, but they probably weren't really taken all that seriously or enforced all that rigorously. But what I found was that in some cases, like in Elizabethan London, in one case, there was a guy who wore um, a, a item of clothing that was considered to be contrary to public order. Um, and he was uh, seized by the guards, he had the garment ripped off and, and you know, kind of the lining pulled out um, and then marched through the streets um, it, as an example and brought to his home where they got his other clothing and ripped the linings out of those, those items as well. So they were really taking this um, pretty seriously. And that kind of blew me away as well. I didn't realize just how, how strict the enforcement had been. That seems like something like directly related to to like today's like a lot of like dress code policies and like um, just like office like a, like human resources policies on like what employees have to wear and look like in hairstyles today. That's it. The the way that you described how they forcefully would like like uh, just back these laws it seems like did you find any direct like relations to these in your writing you kind of you talked about it in your talk in your reading but any other ways that you found that kind of direct comparison? yes yes so um the public shaming here's one where you know we still do that and, but it's in high school. In another case, they actually nailed the person's garment to like the city walls as an example to others. Um, but one thing I found in the contemporary context is um, in high schools, um, people who violated the dress code in some high schools would be forced to wear a neon yellow, you know, giant t-shirt that said dress code violator on the front of it. And they had to walk around in that all day long. So, you know, it was kind of similar public shaming. Um, and some of the, rationales are not all that different either uh with with respect especially with respect to women so you know the idea is very ancient that women and women's bodies are a source of temptation and you know sexual temptation and they're responsible um and that comes all the way through to these high school dress codes where they're saying more or less the same thing to girls today like you know you can't wear that because you're going to be a distraction to the boys and really implying you know like it's your fault then because you wore this, you know, skirt that was too short or something like that. That, you know, it's that, the second you said high school, yeah, that like came to me because it's just such a, it, it seems like a breeding ground for that kind of just like racial uh, dress code, just policies too. And mm -hmm. wow, what a, what a, <laughs> what a crazy thing to just like think of there. Um, your book, like this past summer, with the Black Lives Matter movement and this, like the, some of the biggest movements we've seen in our time, um, there was in the book, the book world. We saw a lot of like um, that kind of white people wanting to educate themselves, reading books like White Fragility, The New Jim Crow, um, 
others I can't speak on the top of my head right now. But like your book seems to be should seem I would say to be one of those books that people should pick up and read because um there it's just it's so there's so much information on like how racially like in appearance the the world has like kind of been and just like the racial motivation behind like a lot of clothing that we wear a lot of like culture and like it's culture it's basically just what we are wearing and how we are seen culturally during specific times your book seems to be one of those books that people should pick up and read um do you have do you like have any comments on that any comments on like what why your book should be like seen as a form of education for a lot of white audiences oh yes well you know, I mean, a couple ways. One, I think that in today's environment, people like to feel like, well, we don't really care about the way people dress and we're kind of beyond that. We're all really casual. I don't think that's true. And um, there's still lots of ways in which we judge people based on what they wear, where we have expectations around that. And you can see it really clearly, again, in contexts like high school or workplace dress codes where people are, you know, formally required to wear you know, particular types of clothing. Uh, but you know, another thing you, I, I, I wanna emphasize that it's important as um, a you know, social, political and for personal self-esteem and dignity. And I have to admit that when I started on this project, I underestimated that myself. You know, I teach employment discrimination and civil rights courses at Stanford Law School. And I think the general view of most people working in those areas, and again, it was myself included, was you know things like dress and grooming are kind of too trivial, really, to be to be a civil rights issue. You know, I mean, it may, maybe people are upset about it, but this isn't isn't a civil rights issue, and there's it, you shouldn't treat you shouldn't blow it out of proportion. But that when you look at the history of the way people of color were uh, you know treated, the way their bodies were such a source. Uh, you know, you, you, uh, um, you know, a site of contestation in, sense, in a sense. Um, the way the struggle to be, to dress well was tied up with the struggle for dignity and try, tied up with the struggle for political equality. Um, it becomes more and more clear that this is a, a really a profound issue. It's not trivial at all. So, you know, you look at the role, um, again, in um, early periods when black people are punished for dressing kind of too well anyone who wears a nice suit or a nice clothing is seen as uppity and therefore they need to be put back in their place. Um, then, then you look at the, um, the racial justice struggles in the 1950s and 1960s where you know, dignified dress was an important part of the way those so social protest movements sent a message. And it wasn't just a matter of trying to you know, kind of fit in with the mainstream, but it was also an assertion. Uh, you know, I deserve dignity and I deserve dignified treatment um, and I'm demonstrating that. So, you know, and then you know, you're moving forward to uh, later movements in racial justice struggles. Um, you know, the Black Panthers have a different style. SNCC, you know, starts to develop a different, um, but all, but they cared about it. It wasn't irrelevant. It wasn't just that they were dressing for comfort or convenience, but they were, you know, they understood that this sent a, a you know, social message. And, um, and, and th those are lessons that are still relevant today. That, no, that's just so, yeah, like everything you're saying, like as a black man myself, I'm just like, wow, this, I see this in like my culture and I see this in like how I 
grown up and moved throughout the world. Um, that's so, and it seems, have you noticed that like, and I think you kind of said that too, there is like a kind of stigma against like that not being important in the Black Lives Matter movement. You kind of said that, but could you, is there any more that you would like to say on that or anything else you found out while researching the book on that topic? Yes, I mean, after um, the Black Lives Matter struggles, it was interesting that at first, it really, it didn't seem that there was any kind of unified or um, you know, consideration to dress. You know, people came out wearing whatever. And in a way, that was its own statement. You know, it means it's everybody. It's a big, uh, you know, spontaneous outpouring of, um, of anger and protest. But as the, you know, as things continued, you started to get people who did um, think about what they were wearing and kind of coordinate it. So you, you had a group of um, black men in Harlem who dressed up in suits and ties for, you know, in order to uh, celebrate the life and mourn the death of a victim of police violence. Um, or you had a transgender group, um, and I believe it was Queens who wore all white. Um, and then you had this group um, down in South Carolina who dressed in what they described as their Sunday best. So they're making this explicit reference to the civil rights struggles of the 1950s, early 1960s. Um, now, they, what was great about it was that their Sunday best, you know, didn't look like the Sunday best of the 1950s and 60s. They had these sharp suits, but they were, you know, they brighter colors and, uh, you know, but, but it was clear that they had given this a lot of thought. And they even said, you know, we're making, you know, we're, we're thinking, how do we want to be remembered? Um, and how will future generations look at us? And we, we, we thought this, visual statement was important. So I, I you know, again, I think the role of, uh, of, of clothing and making that personal statement for your own um, sense of self, but also for what it communicates, you know, is still important. That, wow, that just, the, I feel like, they, yeah, that's, there's just so much importance there that I, I'm not like, the visors are off my eyes. And I'm like, wow, yeah. I'm just gonna like, I wanna look in the, it's so true the iconography of these marches will be remembered for generations to come. And just like, it's gonna be so important in how like, and like even um, how like children are dressing now have a lot to do with these protests and how they want this to like represent them, how they want their political and personal beliefs to be represented through their clothing. Yeah. Um, that's, that's just so, that's, so awesome to like think of now um is there anything that in your well thinking on your research and everything that you've seen is there any what guesses you have for how like the future of um the stress codes in general and all these dress policies will go and even the cultural like just like movement will affect it uh, are you thinking it, so uh, it, it, with respect to like political movements uh, mm -hmm. Yes, I think the one thing that um, there's a practical reason for people to focus on dress, which is it shows organization. And, you know, one thing mm -hmm. I found pretty interesting was that um, there, there was a sociologist who was describing this phenomenon, but she was saying, you know, when you look at the civil rights struggles of the 50s and 60s, um, what people understood, because there was no social media back then, right? And then so to mm -hmm. organize an event like this, you needed you know, years of, of organization and months and months of planning. And so when you got something like the March on Washington, the power structure, the people in charge said, you know, oh boy, if they can organize this, 
you know, they've got an organization behind them, they've got discipline, they're going to be a force to be reckoned with. And one thing that can sometimes be missing from today's political struggles where you can organize it on Facebook really quickly is that sense that you really got an organization and discipline behind it. And clothing can be a way to demonstrate that, you know, like, okay, it's not just everyone looked at Facebook and decided to come out, but, you know, this is a group of people who were organized and committed and they've got, you know, a, a common agenda. And that, you know, that's not to say, it's, it's not to, to, to say that spontaneous protests aren't also powerful, but it's powerful in a different way. And I think that's gonna continue to matter. Um, you know, I mean, in terms of just the way dress codes are gonna go generally outside of political um, activism, I mean, you know, it's really after, um, after we get out of this kind of COVID nightmare and can go back to work <laughs> in person, um, it's, you know, what's going to change? Um, one thing you're seeing now is that you've got this weird phenomenon of kind of, um, of high status loungewear that's starting to emerge. So people are getting on Zoom and you know, it's, it's getting kind of silly to get on Zoom and wear a suit, um, even right. if you wear a suit to the office. So people usually aren't doing that unless they're going to be on TV or something like that. But mm -hmm. what I started to, to hear more about is that what they are doing is you're getting, um, well, I need to wear, you know, loungewear, but it's got to be polished or it's got to be, um, you know, done in such a way that, that it shows high status. So we're already getting people trying to, you know, set up a little bit of a status hierarchy, even in the loungewear in this kind of thing. Another version of that you get is like, have you heard of this website, Room Raider? Um, Room Raider. Oh. So when you're on, um, when you're on uh, Zoom, like maybe you can't mm -hmm. see too much of the person, but you see the whole room behind it. So people oh, started yeah. to say like, you know, be careful about what's in the room because everyone's going to comment now on your dirty kitchen or <laughs> you know, what kind of wine you've got in the background that you didn't mm -hmm. think anyone was looking at. So now everyone's kind of staging the background. Um, and in a weird way, that's like a dress code too. It's like a virtual dress code. Yeah. No, that's, um, one, I think that we should get in on this. Let's start a, like a fancy loungewear uh hey, yeah. like, wow, let's do it Richard. let's let's get on let's get in the forefront of this no that that is true i think yeah a lot of my friends and like people just i mean with they're just like comforts coming first like before style which i'm i'm a fan of i want to be comfortable with that yeah. <laughs> on zoom and i hope i would i would be one of those few people who would just probably not few probably growing but like who wants to like go to the office wearing like the most comfortable clothes now but um yeah comfort um fancy comfort like wear casual yeah that's the right, right way to say it. it just it seems like the future yeah i sign off on that i'm in all right um no that's that's really cool and then the yeah i in the staging um is that seems like a very just like something I've not thought about. Like, yeah, what does your background say about you? Like, what is that? Oh, I need to get like my books back here now. <laughs> um, just I'll just make sure people know I read. Um, net. Uh, my next question for you is like. Um. So, Richard, was there with my next question? Was there anything that like you found um, in your research and in, in in the book that's like out of the box that like um readers will read and be like oh this is so 
cool. This is so like weird. I never thought about this. Yeah, I think there are a few things. One thing that was surprising to me was if you looked at the, um, most people think of fashion as um, the domain of women. And so we think women's clothes are fashionable, men's clothes are not. But I think we imagine that that's always been the case. Actually, for a big part of the men's clothing was the most fashionable. It was really clear that uh, men's fashion was on the cutting edge mm -hmm. and women were imitating male fashion. And that all changed um, at a pretty brief period, historical period in the late 1700s, in this moment that um, I described as the great masculine renunciation. And um, the men's clothing got less, much less, you know, ornate, less elaborate. Before then, men were wearing makeup, they were wearing jewels, they, you know, they, this was all the sign of power and of elite status. And then everything shifted and men started wearing like streamlined, toned down, sober clothing. And it was only women who were wearing the more elaborate things. But that, you know, late 1700s, relatively recently, uh, that really surprised me. Was it, was that, was there like a big movement that was kind of involved with that? Was there just like this, was it kind of with um, like a societal, uh, religious kind of movement that kind of toned down the male or just like any like a toxic masculinity in a way that kind of did it? <laughs> well, in a way, it's funny, you know, in a way you could see this as one element of toxic masculinity in a particular sense, but um, I mean, but there were, the main thing that happened was people um, started to reject the values of aristocratic societies. So, you know, in that sense, not toxic, but a, a good development, it became egalitarian. And so a lot of the way that older societies expressed status were then seen as inconsistent with new values of kind of, you know, democracy, human rights, mm -hmm. things like this. But um, all of those values, now there were also religious values. So, you know, sobriety, um, and modesty, uh, you know, things like this were you know, values that were becoming more important. But a lot of it had to do with the rejection of aristocracy, um, but only for men. So this new type of fashion, and I would argue it's still fashion. It's just fashion in a different sense. It's expressing something right. different, um, you know, emerged, um, but only for men. And so in one sense, um, the, 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 an aspect of gender hierarchy got worse, even at a moment when we typically think of things getting more equal. Um, in that respect, you could argue things got harder for women mm -hmm. with respect to, um, you know, asserting power and authority. Do you, do you think that like that type of, um, like the, that flair, that uh, style of like men having like, a lot of jewelry and color in their clothes. Is that coming back or has it come back ever in like since the late 1700s? Yes, it has. And uh, you, you, so you get these kind of moments in history where men, um, some men kind of reclaim that. So for instance, that term, the great masculine renunciation um, was coined by a English psychologist named John Carl Flugel. 
and he was part of a men's dress reform movement that wanted you know, the point his point was we want to get back that um you know kind of more expressive fashion for men so he thought that the move was really depressing and wanted to reclaim it you know you have the dandies um mm -hmm. That, that, that um, were men who dressed in more um, elaborate and sumptuous, sumptuous attire. Mm -hmm. You get the zoot suit, you know, which is another version of it. And people in the United States are very angry. They didn't like um, that style of clothing and saw it as a threat to the social order. There's zoot suit riots. Right. But that's another time when men kind of took that back and then you get people like Cab Calloway, um, lots of Latinos in Southern California wearing the, the zoot suit. You know, then you got the Peacock Revolution in um, the 1960s. You know, once again, men coming back to that um, kind of more um, more elaborate fashion. And I think you're seeing it again today. So yeah, this kind of thing comes in waves. And I think as particular types of gender roles are being challenged, um, one way that's expressed is through fashion. So you know, you mentioned toxic masculinity and the extent to which people are now recognizing certain aspects of male gender roles are you know toxic. They're a problem for society. You know, men rejecting those. Um, one way that's expressed, I think, is through fashion. It's and it's interesting you say that with like with gender roles being questioned because yeah, there seems to be a lot of um, talk now, especially gender roles related to fashion like gender roles how people are expressing themselves do you is is do you think the future of that will definitely like the how fashion will be directly intertwined with how gender roles will change and will evolve in our future yes i do i think one really consistent theme in the history that I have explored is that um, the importance of gendered uh, clothing has been maintained for hundreds of years, but a lot of that had to do with the role of women, particularly in elite societies. And, you know, I mean, a lot of this was driven by the elite because they were the ones that had the money for new fashions. Right. Um, but, um, you know, the role of women in um, the family the reproductive role was considered to be so important. If you think about it in, you know, historically, the, you know, family lineage was where political power was organized. You had dynasties. Um, and, uh, you know, now as that changed, then gender roles kind of changed along with it. And in today's environment, when you think about it, rather than um, you know, sex and gender being tied to reproductive role, increasingly those two are, are decoupled from each other. You have technologies that allow for you know, reproduction and family outside of the older gender um, norms and sex norms. And at the same time, um, the main reason when people think about sex, it's not primarily for reproduction anymore, it's for pleasure. Right. So it be, kind of makes sense that the gender roles would be more fluid as those big social forces have changed. And I think that's being reflected in new reproaches to gendered clothing. Right, no, that's... So in like, it's just so eye-opening to, to like the idea of like gender roles and fashion being so intertwined, but it makes sense. It's like, oh, it's, it's very like, I'm, you see it every day. You see it in like conversation every day and how like yeah. celebrities are dressed and how like a certain, if like a male celebrity decides to wear um, more like uh, traditionally female clothing, what's that, how that's talked about in um, media and just 
throughout like culture that's so yeah that's so eye-opening um and kind of off of that and as like a nice I think last question to ask um where do you see like um within culture like how we're dressed going like what's what do you think will be like from your research like a prediction of like where um fashion and what people like dress uh will take will go <laughs> wow that's a really big question it's always tricky to predict but i mean i see a few trends the one we just talked about with respect to gender i do think that um you know traditional gender norms are changing and they're more fluid and that you're going to see that reflected in, in fashion in a variety of ways historically it's always been women who have adopted elements of men's fashion and if you think about that you know i mean even in recent years a woman wearing something that men traditionally wear is you know kind of maybe a little edgy but not a big deal a man adopting women's fashion you know historically has been really unusual and very considered to be very um um you know, outside the norm. But I think that's changing. So um, that's one trend. Another thing, um, you know, I think the whole post-COVID um, casual clothes, you, you, that's going to continue, In but it'll be transformed. I think in one sense, people are sick of being on Zoom and they're going to, you know, they're going to be ready to come out and wear new fashions and be out in public. Um, at the same time, I think this kind of more comfortable, um, the athleisure trend is probably here to stay. So um, what you'll get are different versions of it. You're already starting to see some versions of it where you know there's a status hierarchy really that's being expressed through different kinds of athleisure. Um, right. You know, there's sweatpants that are designed to look more professional for somebody who's you, you know. So I think you're going to see that trend. Yeah. Um, the Ivy Park of it all. Yeah. Yeah. The no, that's that's. Yeah, that seems to be um, a trend that's just that's here to stay. Yeah, yeah. No, that. Yeah, uh, no, sorry, <laughs> interrupted. Oh, it's definitely. And then you know, the last thing, fashion has always involved um, using kind of recycling old garments with a particular uh, significance, and you're know, bringing that significance into the present, but also transforming it. Um, so there's always going to be some aspect of that. Right now, you know, I think there's a lot of nostalgia um, for, uh, you know, earlier periods in history when things seemed more settled, when, you know, it's, uh, Western societies in particular were more confident um, than they are right now. And even though I don't think we're going to get that confidence back easily because we're facing a lot of social challenges um, and for good reason. But I do think people have nostalgia for that sense of confidence. And so you get um, you know, kind of revival movements with the old, you know, the business suit or you know, more traditional women's clothing. Um, right. I think that's going to be out there, but with this new significance in a way it's being transformed as people wear it in the present moment. No, that's, oh, wow. That's so, wow, that's <laughs> so cool to think about and it's, um, no, that's amazing. Thank you so much, Richard, for this. Um, and that's, that's the, I think that's a great place to end this podcast uh, episode. Um, do you have any last words to the listeners and readers? Um, well, I uh, hope you buy the book and I think it, it, it expresses a lot. Uh, there, there, there's a, a range of things in there. There's something for everybody. Um, mm -hmm. 
Um, and I, I'd just like to say thank you for having me on the show. Okay. Um, really enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, no, this has been a fantastic conversation. Um, and for everyone listening, uh, Richard's book, Dress Code, is now on sale at um, skylightbooks.com or you can come to the store and grab a copy or just go to your local independent bookstore to grab a copy. Thank you so much for this, Richard. And for everyone who's listening, have a great and beautiful day. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. I see.